0: Uh, it's such a great, great, great pleasure being here in front of you in a 3D mode instead of a, in a 2D. It's a, quite a pleasant change, I have to say. I, have to say. Um, I, will, I will try to help the conference to catch up in time, so we will start right away. Um, this part of the, of the conference will actually focus on, um, on fuels, but we will give it a, a bit of a different twist. Uh, we will look at the impact that the emerging, that's an, one of my favorite phrases, the emerging landscape of decarbonization requirements. It's already there, it's not emerging anymore. Uh, the impact that that will have uh, on the choices that we have to make. Um, and since we're talking about uh, uh, analytics and investments, uh, we will also try to give it a bit of um, uh, uh, monetary flavor at the end. So please bear with me. Uh, what you see on, on, on the screen right now is a slide that we tend to use when we are trying to, uh, to, to explain what the challenge for shipping is, what the decarbonization challenge is. And the graph on the right-hand side uh, was uh, the outcome, the result of uh, our 2020 energy transition outlook, where we tried to model what the forecasted fuel mix will be in 2050. And as you see, it's on a, uh, following a base case scenario, um, it was quite uh, opposite of optimistic. It, wa- it was quite conservative. Uh, based on that, we would still have 40% in the fuel mix of, um, of, of of fuels coming from fossil origin. However, during the, the last two years, and I have, to, I have to explain that that was based on a base case scenario that was informed by the already announced policies at that point in time. But over the, over the last two years, we have seen policies that have been announced on a global scale. We have seen also the IMO setting a more uh, solid agenda with measures that we will be discussing in the next slide. And we end up with a kind of a different view of the future you see on the uh, bottom uh, right-hand corner of your screen. That is also fed by information about the introduction of the lifecycle approach. If we have that in place, then shipping will probably marginally meet both targets for 2050, but both targets as they still are. And there is a question mark there, because there are discussions about revisions. If we go for net zero, then that might not be enough. We will have to use a life cycle approach, and we will talk about that in the next session. So, what is the emerging landscape? What, what do ships have to face right now? Uh, in, a, in a simplistic uh, way uh, to, to view things, um, we have a timeline until, let's say, the next decade. Uh, By January 2023, so in a a few months from now, ships are going to face what we call the EXI, the technical filter, and at the same time we'll have to go down the decarbonization trajectory that is imposed by IMO, the Carbon Intensity Indicator CII. That's not the only trajectory that ships are going to have to face. Um, We also see movement from the European Union uh, uh, in the context of the Fit for 55, I hope this was not a, a, an alarm or a fire drill. Um, in the Fit for 55 context uh, uh, set of regulations, you have also decarbonization trajectories that are uh, presented uh, in the form of uh, fuel EU. and you also have the market that is pushing ships and, uh, and fleets to decarbonize again, introducing their own decarbonization trajectories. Uh, We mentioned here in this slide the Poseidon Principles and the Sea Cargo Charter. This actually requires now different lines of reporting or maybe uh, an approach that has to look for a combined trajectory and that trajectory will be served by the proper choice of fuel. And what is also now uh, developing is a trend to assess zero carbon uh, freight, to ask for zero carbon uh, freight services. We've seen that uh, with the cargo owners, uh, zero emission vessels movement, a little little before uh, COP26 took place, um, and also being introduced under the context of the Green Corridors with the Clydebank declaration. Why do I mention that? Because we have now a definition, information of what we actually call zero carbon, and it has uh, it, it infers the use of a life cycle approach, looking at how the, f- the fuel is produced, delivered, and then consumed. So, we are now looking at the well-to-wake approach, and it is also now finding its way into the IMO. What has been also made clear during uh, the last couple of years in all the the studies that have seen the light of day is that the energy transition will be based on two actual value chains, the hydrogen value chain and the carbon value chain. The topic of this presentation is mainly focused on the hydrogen value chain. And this is uh, looking at how the energy conversion from uh, uh, from, uh, production to consumption takes place by having that energy token, that energy building block hydrogen uh, as a a unit in order to produce uh, carbon neutral fuels at the end for consumption uh, at the uh, consumer end. It is based on uh, the concept of the production of fuels and how what it takes place during that production and what is the carbon footprint of the production of fuels, the distribution and of course the consumption. Where do we stand as far as regulations therefore are concerned? Well, there is a movement um, in uh, uh, the next MEPC, the life cycle approach will be discussed. uh, We already have had a number of proposals, mainly Coming from the European Union, Japan, and others, that in Australia, that requested the discussion to kick off and have an introduction of a framework in order to address this life cycle approach, this calculation of the carbon footprint of fuels, so that we can actually compare apples to apples and have carbon factors in our calculations when we calculate the carbon intensity of our operations. That being said, as far as the EU is concerned, the EU has already introduced, in the context of the Fit for 55 agenda, within the fuel EU regulation, an approach towards calculating and evaluating the carbon footprint of the different fuels from a life cycle perspective. And it has even presented a table of the different fuels with the different carbon factors, looking at the production until the consumption on board ships. And if we take that into consideration, then you will see that you have different actual results when you include production into the uh, total uh, calculation of the carbon footprint of fuels. There are carbon neutral fuels in the sense that when you are producing them, you are capturing somehow the carbon that is produced from production. And therefore, whatever is emitted at the end uh, uh, on the ship, has already been captured or stored, and therefore the balance is net, that is called net zero. But you also have um, green fuels, zero carbon fuels, that do not have uh, a carbon atom in their molecule, and therefore uh, their emissions are considered as zero carbon. However, what you see on this slide is that even on on the ones that we are considering green fuels, when you are actually doing what we call the carbon accounting, of the uh, combustion and the final calculation of the carbon footprint, there are elements that can actually contribute to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, either CO2, the carbon dioxide itself, or other emissions that can be categorized as greenhouse gases. That's why you see, for example, ammonia there, the green green ammonia is not completely zero because it does have um, uh, some CO2 produced either from a secondary fuel that will be required for ammonia combustion or from other emissions that are generated through the combustion of ammonia. And then that begs the question, do we have enough of the production capacity so that shipping can get the required quantities of green fuels, uh, the required quantities for its decarbonization purposes. Well, at this point, the straightforward answer is no, right off the bat. It's easy, that, it's easy to answer that. And what is actually required is a substantial scaling up of the renewables infrastructure. Uh, what you see on this slide is an exercise that we did with the Merce McKinney-Meller Center uh, being founding partners. We started that straight away from the uh, inauguration of the center. It was one of the first exercises we did. And what we uh, found out is that if we if we need to produce the required quantities that shipping wants for, say, green ammonia or green methanol, then the production, uh, the, the installation of uh, photovoltaics, for example, will have to scale up by four, wind, by a factor of 5, and if you, if you add the uh, other consumers into that equation, then the renewable energy would actually have to scale up in the factor of 7 to 10. Um, this is a significant scaling up that has to take place. What we already see, however, is that the trend is actually there and we see this picking up. There is also geopolitics that helps that um, scaling up as well. So, if, if you want to look at the nitty-gritty part of the fuels themselves, you have a number of fuels that are being now discussed. Some of them have a, a more um, uh, a higher rate of uh, uh, maturity as far as their uh, um, te- te- technology uh, is concerned, as far as the processes are uh, are concerned, and the experience that the industry itself has. For example, if you look at the uh, uh, methane or methanol, there are already technologies that can uh, support that. When we say methane, we mean LNG. Um, there are technologies, there are engine sets, there are fuel, gas supply uh, equipments and, and tanks. Uh, we have technologies that are currently proven and can actually support the usage of those fuels. When you venture into the what we call the zero-carbon fuel uh, territory uh, with ammonia and hydrogen, then things start to change a bit. As far as ammonia is concerned, the, expect, the expected uh, rolling out of the first engines is in two years from now. With uh, hydrogen, hydrogen is a long-term solution. It is considered the token, the building block of the other fuels when we are talking about carbon neutrality. In carbon-neutral fuels, um, however, the use of hydrogen itself as a fuel for uh, deep sea operations is somewhat challenging currently, and we see that this is probably going to be in the mix of uh, uh, deep sea shipping uh, in the mid to long term. However, there are uh, technologies that can uh, support the use of hydrogen as well, uh, particularly in the power generation of. Uh, Onboard vessels, um, if you look at uh, the example of fuel cells, for example, in some particular segments, then hydrogen is uh, already considered as a solution. However, you would also notice that there are differences between the fuels as far as risks are concerned, and um, whether uh, we have solved or not the risks that are related to conventional fuels. Um, once uh, somebody or one is actually looking at the risk profile of the new renewable fuels that are suggested uh, for uh, the decarbonization purposes of our industry, then that uh, actually uh, is a completely different scale of a problem. Um, ammonia has a toxicity problem and therefore the risk is, uh, is considerable and it has to be assessed when we're talking about an ammonia fuel vessel. And hydrogen is uh, very explosive and and, and industry needs to have more experience Mm -hmm. on that in order to to support it. If you also look at the specifics, so the economics, how do you bring those fuels on board? Um, Methanol would actually require, uh, as you see on this slide, almost two and a half uh, the volume of what we have for conventional fuels in order to accommodate the same trip Um, ammonia a bit larger than that however uh, with methanol you have the um, uh, the benefit of having a less complicated fuel gas supply system and and storage requirements that you have with a a cryogenic type fuel and a fuel that is uh, high in toxicity and we're venturing now into the impact so What you see on the uh, left-hand side is an overview of uh, some analysis. Uh, We looked into the data of how three major segments will actually perform against the requirements of CII until the end of the decade. And what you see is that all three major categories at the end of this decade will actually face some significant challenges with regards to the CIR rating. You see that almost half of the, of the fleet, even more, uh, in all three categories will actually be rated D or E, um, which in the latter uh, case will have to, um, uh, it, it will actually ask the vessel to uh, explore improvement options. Um, But what happens if you make a different choice in fuel Uh, and if you start incorporating a carbon factor different than what we have from a conventional fuel, you see, particularly here in the three cases that we have, with the VLCC, a 14,000EU container and a capture max, that in the case of LNG, it gets a longer CII life, considerably longer. Also with methanol but keep in mind that methanol contributes a bit less to the decarbonization if we don't calculate the whole life cycle and it's not uh, green or biomethanol it has a lesser uh, impact on the reduction of emissions when you expect that LNG will actually contribute about twenty percent methanol will contribute about ten and I did promise that we'll also try to give you a sense of monetization uh, when we're looking at the impact. The regulatory scheme that we have and is currently in development, of course, that puts a direct price on emissions is the one that we have in the European Union. Um, either the EU ETS or the fuel EU, they look at the emissions that are generated and based on the nature of the emissions, based on their life cycle approach, the carbon, uh, the energy intensity uh, of the vessel, then it actually um, either requests the vessel to submit allowances or in the fuel EU case, uh, administers a penalty. What I want to highlight here, um, as I uh, venture into the end of my presentation, is the fact that in, in all three cases, the cost of having a conventional fuel gets significant. In the container case, you see that the amount that this container will actually have to pay in allowances by 2025, range up to 400,000 euros. That's on, in 2025. So that's an added uh, operational cost that needs to be incorporated in the planning and the, de- the decarbonization strategy of a company when we're looking at how our ships will perform against the trajectories that I mentioned at the beginning. Therefore, in order to conclude, and I think I made it with uh, some time to spare, um, we discussed about the different decarbonization trajectories. Uh, I made reference to the emerging, and and I corrected myself, it's no longer emerging, it is here, the decarbonization landscape of requirements that has a, a multitude of decarbonization trajectories and KPIs that have to be met, and therefore, what we actually have to do is find that combined trajectory that we have to align our vessels and fleets against, benchmark our vessels against, and fleets against this requirement and explore improvement options. In many cases, that improvement option, particularly for the uh, uh, new building and replacement uh, vessels that we have to include in our fleet in the uh, mid and long term future, will come uh, in the form of a fuel. Um, what we also highlighted is the fact that carbon is getting a price carbon at some point will have a price and where there is a price there is an opportunity and a proper strategy will actually serve a company explore and find that opportunity thank you very much for your attention i think I'm